This evening I'd like to speak about a couple of upcoming events on our calendar and make sure that we all understand the context of these events. Next weekend, um, Saturday the 21st, we have a sewing class in the afternoon. And following that sewing class, we have a jukai, a precept ceremony for someone who has been sewing for maybe a year and a half now or more, two years, I think. So I want to talk about what is this thing called jukai and what is the process and how does one prepare to receive the precepts. Jukai itself is the ceremony of offering and receiving precepts. And it would appear to be that the ceremony is about that one person or group of people who are on the receiving end. But actually, it's a community event. And uh, I want to talk about the community part of Jukai and lead us into understanding um, what it is we're doing. And it'll take some conversation, I think, what it is we're doing when we choose to publicly affirm the precepts. At least in part, what we're doing is taking refuge and making a commitment to return and return and return to taking refuge. The returning is the practice. And we're making a commitment to upholding the ethical standards that the Buddha set. And they're commonly held ethical standards in humanity. They're not a surprise. Most religious traditions around the world have something like the precepts as guidelines for behavior. And of course, I know and I want to acknowledge that it doesn't take formally receiving the precepts in order to uphold the precepts. There are many people who choose not to formally receive the precepts for a variety of reasons. Some people just dig in and say, no, I'm just not a joiner. I'm not going to do that. And nonetheless, completely immersed in practice. And for others, it seems to be an important uh, ritual to go through to publicly take these precepts as their own. Anybody who is studying this way, and that includes everybody in the room, Zoom room tonight, has already awakened way-seeking mind. You're ready to take refuge. You have already taken refuge. The process of sewing a robe is a process of continually taking refuge. In our community, we're welcoming, supportive, inclusive. I like to believe we're kind, at least most of the time. And I want to um, put our kindness and our taking refuge in the context of what the Buddha taught. Hmm. Maybe I'll start with this and then come back to my notes. I have, um, somebody's entering. I have a screen to share with you and I want to tell you the story 
about the robe. And here's the way I understand the story. There was a time when the Buddha was still alive, that there was a landowner or king, somebody who was privileged, affluent, we don't know exactly who, who, when traveling on the roads in the area, got down off his carriage and bowed all the way to the ground to people who he thought were the Buddha's followers. Did this multiple times and for a long time. And then at some point, got off his carriage and um, bowed, and then found out that the person he had been bowing to was not a disciple of the Buddha at all. And so this person went to the Buddha and said, you have to find a way to identify who your people are so that I know who I'm bowing to. And this is where the identification of wearing a robe began. So at that time, here's where I'm going to share my screen with you. At that time, the Buddha and Ananda, oh, it's going to take me a minute to get there. I'm sorry. Oh, there we are. The Buddha and Ananda were up on a hill, and this is what they were looking at, something like this. There we are. Something like this, rice fields, as seen from above. And at that time, you know, many people could not afford fabric for robes. So they began the custom of going to the places where there would be cast off cloth. For example, in places where people had bathed or where people had toileted or where people had been cremated, had been wrapped in cloth and cremated. So they began the custom of taking that cloth, cleaning it completely, dyeing it all one color and sewing it together in the pattern of rice fields. So the Buddha and Ananda were up on a hill overlooking rice fields, figuring out how to sew together pieces of fabric. And in this case, we can see that the water would flow downhill. And so the folds of a robe go in a particular direction that are imitating water flowing downhill. The Buddha said to Ananda, this shall be called the field of merit. Much later in future cultures, rice fields didn't look like that at all, but began to look like this. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Flat. And we can see that it doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to see that there are places where a farmer would need to walk in between those sections of planted rice. <clears throat> and it certainly doesn't take much more of a leap to see how that pattern, long and short, with divisions in between, 
became what we now look at as a robe. You can see that. <clears throat> and this is what is now called the field of merit. <clears throat> when we chant, great robe of liberation, field far beyond form and weakness, wearing the Tathagata's teaching, saving all beings. This is the field of merit. This is the field far beyond form and emptiness that we're talking about. And in order to accomplish that, a person begins to sow. The stitch looks like this. And when the needle goes into the fabric, one says, Namu. When the needle point pokes out of the fabric, one says, Kie. And when the thread is pulled, one says butsu, namu kie butsu. This is, translates as taking refuge in Buddha. I'm going to stop my screen share so I can see you better. Namu kie butsu. And on the small robe that many people you, you are surrounded by people who wear the small robe. Hundreds of stitches, probably 800 to 1,000 stitches on a robe of that size. And on the large robe that priests wear and teachers wear, thousands of stitches. Taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in Buddha, taking refuge in Buddha. Mm -hmm. So we wear this robe close to our heart and lungs. And for those who wear the big robe, wrapping ourselves in the teaching of Buddha, the teachings of reality as it is. So this robe in Japanese is known as Nyoho-e. The Nyo is reality as it is. So nyoho the ho part is dharma, the teachings about reality as it is. And e, nyoho e, the clothing. We're wearing the clothing of the teachings about reality as it is. We're wearing the garment of Buddha. This is an identifier. Of course, it's not the only way that one can identify themselves as a Buddhist. But it's a tradition we carry forward, uh, honoring our heritage, honoring our lineage, for those who choose to do this in a public way. So there's a Dogen teaching called Sodo no Gyoji. The Sodo is the same, means the same as Zendo. So this is the ceaseless practice that occurs in a temple. Ceaseless practice, we would experience it this way. Sometimes a period will seem endless, but what this really means is ceaselessly uh, making a commitment to return, to take refuge. The Gyoji essay includes this that I'd like to read to you. Following the Buddha's and ancestors' way in meditation 
in general work, in social gatherings, and in ceremonies. Gyoji has to be practiced with the joy of hearing the Dharma and with gratitude so that we can become one with it. So this is Dogen talking about Gyoji, ceaseless practice, is not limited to our time on the cushion. It's in meditation, of course, in our general work, in our social gatherings, and in ceremonies. We keep the Buddhas and ancestors before us with joy and with gratitude so that we can become one with it. And then that passage continues, keeping the Buddha way in mind and acting in the proper way we willingly practice. So what is this proper way? We have the guidelines of the precepts in order to determine what exactly is proper. And I don't mean stuffy proper, I just mean in accord with reality as it is, what is the most appropriate response? This is how I hold the precepts. Now, reality as it is, is a pretty big um, theme to address, but let's hold it this way for now. <laughs> the way the Buddha taught it is nothing is separate. So therefore we now call this the non-duality of reality. And um, so nothing is separate, meaning everything is connected and we have something that we recognize as cause and effect that sometimes results in suffering, sometimes results in the release from suffering. This is the core of the Buddha's teaching. So we make this effort to live in accord with this nature of all things as part of taking refuge. We recognize that the uh, cause and effect business has something to do with um, constantly being in co-creation with reality. You know, ourselves, the conditions of this one, uh, contributing to the conditions, responding to the conditions, constantly in co-creation. So I was giving um, <clears throat> orientation to Zen to someone the other day, kind of Zazen instruction, basic orientation. And that person asked a very innocent question, having observed this in um, morning program. Why do you all put that thing on your head? <laughs> What's that about? You know, it's innocent, uh, innocent question. And at first I was taken aback, you know, that thing. Like, no, that's a robe. <laughs> this is the Buddha's teaching in the form of a robe. But I got over myself quickly and then said something like, you know, we're taught to put nothing above us, above it. <laughs> put nothing above it. So we put it on our heads uh, and chant the robe chant. And, you know, if somebody is traveling with their robe, it's the last thing that goes in the suitcase so that nothing is above it in the suitcase, for example. So we're taught to put nothing above it. And in a way, we're just following form by putting it on our head and chanting with each other. But there's much more to it than that. 
at the beginning of practice, sometimes we're engaged in the practice of, okay, if you tell me that that's the form, I'll do it that way because I trust you, I believe you, I'll do what you say uh, because I trust the setup here. But eventually, um, we have to find out for ourselves. You know, that's part of the Buddha's teaching. You sit outright multiple times, don't believe me. Find out for yourself if what I'm telling you is true. So when we put it on our head, we're symbolically in some ways uh, saying, yes, I trust the ancestors who have taught us this. I have some faith in my ancestors. But we're also saying, I'm taking refuge and I have faith in my capacity to find out whether what the Buddha was teaching was true. So, it's a different kind of faith, actually, when we arrive there. That is, yeah, no question about it. This is my life. I'm grounded. I'm clear. I'm stable. Right. It's exactly true that this practice is the center of my life. I'm taking refuge here. Nothing is above this. Reality as it is, and in accord with reality as it is. So on a daily basis, we re-up this promise to engage. And uh, Katagiri, Tomoe Katagiri, uh, the wife of Dainin Katagiri, who was a teacher long ago and Tomoe has taught sewing for many years. She talks about the wearing of the Buddha's robe as being congenial with the teachings of the Buddha. I love that, being congenial with or being in accord with. So on a daily basis, we re-up this promise to be congenial with the teachings of the Buddha, to be congenial with our lives as they are. So with this marker, Buddha and Ananda up on the hill, seeing the rice field and designing the robe. With this as a marker, no king is going to be getting off their carriage in order to bow down to us. It's simply a way of saying this path is a path of honor and I honor it. This path is an experience of community, supporting each other in sometimes very subtle ways, sometimes very overt ways, very subtle most of the time. And now, this process of returning and engaging with the forms of practice, building relationships with each other, in the case of someone who may receive the precepts, building a relationship with their preceptor, putting practice in the center of our lives. It's not necessary to wear a robe in order to do this. And by putting community in the center, please understand that I don't mean just this community, although this community is quite precious to me. I mean the community of practitioners throughout time. We're talking thousands of years 
of connected practice, the community of practitioners throughout time. So returning to community in-person practice is not a simple endeavor at this time. <laughs> there is the convenience of Zoom, which allows us to visit over great distance. And there is the convenience of Zoom, which allows us to stay in bed in the morning just a little bit longer than if we had to drive across town to get to the Zendo. But we are back in person in the Zendo, both morning and evening practice now. And we continue, as you know, to offer a Zoom practice because it's an expanded community. This is a way of saying yes, whatever it takes to include everybody's lives. We're here. We're doing this. But it's not a simple endeavor. So there is a, a kind of palpable, I want to say, anxiety in the actual Zendo. Returning to in-person contact. And there is a palpable kind of uh, awkwardness, I would say, about returning to the full formal forms. Like, that bell sequence feels familiar, but when exactly am I supposed to turn toward the altar? There's kind of a body remembering. And now there's a new layer of discomfort coming in that is people who are uh, remembering quickly are becoming a little bit impatient, I would say, with people who are not remembering quite as quickly. <laughs> so I'm going to encourage us as we are in person practice. And for the Zoom Zendo, there have been this past week even a couple of glitches in the Zoom itself. You know, we weren't able to sign on for a while because the camera wasn't working, for example. Mm -hmm. So impatience at the Zoom end and impatience at the in person end. So I want to talk for a bit about how to work with the feelings that are coming up of impatience and joy, anxiety and delight. All of it is happening at the same time. So um, I want to make reference to the six realms of existence in order to help us understand what's happening on the feeling level. And in order to talk about the six realms of existence, I'm going to share my screen again with an image that you will recall from teachings in the past. Just briefly, I want you to see it. We're going to be back at the stitch for a moment. And now new image. Here we go. This is known as the wheel of life. We like to imagine that we're the first ones who are doing um, remote teaching. But in fact, we are not the first ones who are doing remote teaching. In ancient times, the people with the teachers, women and men who understood what the Buddha taught, would wander from place to place with an image something like this. And uh, teach what the Buddha taught based on what is around the perimeter of the circle, the 12-fold chain of dependent origination, and in the center, 
greed, hate, and delusion. Mm -hmm. Around the center, the 10 beneficial activities and the 10 non-beneficial activities. So this was basically a graphic organizer for teachers at the time to wander from place to place and offer remote teaching. And in this circle between the 12 and the 10 and the 3, um, there are the six realms of existence. The six realms are these. The heavenly realm, the realms of gods and titans, the human realm, the animal realm, the hell realm, and the realm of the hungry ghosts. The images might not be so clear because they're quite small on the screen, but I'm going to stop the share in reference to this image, uh, the six realms of existence. So just a moment and I'll tell you some of the characteristics of those realms and talk about how exactly do we work with the feelings when we are rambling through those realms. Maybe you have seen um, depictions of Tibetans, usually, who are walking the pathways holding a stick with a thing on top that turns, and that thing on top turns. What they're turning are the six, the wheel of the six realms of existence, recognizing that we spin through these six realms throughout the day. So the animal realm is uh, embodied and has a, a, a needy, for example, what I need to do right now is eat, so I'm going to eat. So there's a one-pointed uh, aspect of animal behavior that is embodied, um, embodied and on the earth. <laughs> There is the realm of what is called the hungry ghost. It's kind of an allegorical feeling of unsatisfied, unsatisfiable, frustrated, the activity when we're up against something and we're selfishly involved in seeking that something and not getting that something. We're in the realm of the hungry ghosts. We're in the hell realm <clears throat> when we are... Uh, claustrophobic, uh, involved in aggressive or aversive behavior when we're fearful. We're in the realm of the titans when we're feeling uh, privileged. I deserve this and everybody else get out of my way. I'm in the realm of the titans. We're in the heavenly realm and some will say, that we're, the heavenly realm is the most dangerous of all because it's passive. It's so lovely. I just want to hang out here forever. Blissful, passive, heavenly. There is definitely a time to enjoy bliss and rest. And it's a pitfall in a way to stay stuck there. And then there's the human realm creativity, sometimes goal-oriented, as we all are at times, and uh, involved in discursive thought. 
imputation and discursive thought. So a couple of quick examples, and then I think it'll be almost time to close. Here's how I personally work with it. Spinning throughout the day with impatience, perhaps, or um, a feeling of joy paired with a feeling of anxiety. I'm not sure about being around all these people paired with a feeling of pleasure about being around my friends again. So my animal body might feel some fear and the animal body would like to lash out protectively. So what I need to do is continue to spin that wheel toward the human realm and discern what exactly am I afraid of? And what are my resources for dealing with this threat? Sometimes the opposite direction is exactly the right thing to do. I'm in the human realm and completely caught up in discursive thought, imputation, I can't let go of what I'm thinking of. What I really need to do is get into my body. Can I call forth the animal realm? so that I can get grounded, take care of the physical needs of this one. These six realms of existence help us in community, both for our own internal discernment and for our interaction with each other. So for example, someone lashes out at you impatiently, just pause for a moment and go, oh, I see. They're momentarily in a hell realm. How about if I keep myself in the human realm, stable, clear, while they figure out how to meet the circumstances as they are? Mm -hmm. And conversely, when I'm in an aggressive way, I would love it if somebody outside of me were stable, clear, discerning. Just give me a second while I catch up to where we are actually. So these six realms of existence are one way of uh, helping us become patient with each other, uh, helping us return to joy in community, and helping us to stay true to the taking refuge, stay true to our way-seeking mind. I put out a lot of thoughts there, and uh, maybe it'll be a good time for us to close, and I'll stick around and in, engage in conversation with you for those who would like to stay. So first, the vows, then a couple of announcements, and we'll be free to converse. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. 